Welcome once again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We're always glad when you join us here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Our engineer, as always, Alan Dempsey. He's a good one. And Andrew Herdlisk is our producer. And Glenn Schroeder is our guest in this first segment. He's in Portland, Oregon. The book is called Never Trust a Leader Without a Limp. Welcome, Glenn. How are you? I'm doing well, Pat. Thank you so much for having me on today. What does that title mean? (laughs) Well, my book is a collection of little statements that my pastor, John Wimber, used to use. He had the ability to kind of summarize both theological truth as well as sort of philosophy of ministry statements in these these, just these these little one-liners. And uh, so... I felt led a couple of years ago to put some of those together and, and collect them and sort of pass uh, that wisdom on. And so the title, Never Trust a Leader Without a Limp, is really just a statement on leadership and how uh, I think any of us that have been in Christian leadership for any length of time realize it's a challenge sometimes and you go through some, some tough deals. But in the end, if we keep our eyes focused on the Lord and we move forward, that those things will make us better leaders in the long run. Glenn, what is the Vineyard Movement? So Vineyard is a, a, a community of churches that began under John's leadership in the uh, late 70s and has since grown. There are now about 700 Vineyard churches in the United States, but we are in over 100 countries, and, and there are uh, close to 3,000 Vineyards worldwide. And, and what is it about them? How, how do you describe a, a vineyard church? Now, that, that is not always an easy question to ask, but I would say this, that we, have, we try to have a, uh, a, a contemporary and relevant focus, so our worship music is, is uh, evolving all the time. There's a new liturgy. We write songs as songwriters and musicians within the movement. Uh, we, we are a spirit-filled uh, church, and so we, we're open to the gifts and the leading of the Holy Spirit in our services. Uh, we, we pray for healing. We, we pray for God to move on people's lives uh, in different situations that they might encounter. Uh, Vineyard has always been kind of known a little bit as a young people's movement, and I think it's, it's more appealing to uh, younger folks today, especially the millennial generation, than maybe some of the more traditional churches that are out there. I want you to tell tell us more about John Wimber. Sure. Uh, so, so John is an interesting uh, was an interesting person. He he was a professional musician by trade. Uh, John was a very accomplished musician, and in the uh, in the early sixties, he was living in California. Got associated with a group called the Paramours that uh, eventually became the Righteous Brothers. And in 1964, uh, the Beals toured the United States for the first time, and they chose the Righteous Brothers to be their opening act. Just prior to that tour, John was uh, introduced to the Lord uh, at a small home Bible study in his hometown in York, Linda, California, committed his life to Christ, and really redirected his life. And he did ended up not going on that tour, staying home and uh, pursuing, really just learning more about what it meant to follow Jesus and be a Christian. He ended up uh, pastoring at the church that he was that he was converted in at, at Yoba Linda Friends there, and eventually went to work for Fuller Seminary as a church growth consultant, uh, worked with Fuller for a number of years, and then uh, his wife and a few other folks started a little home group in Yoba Linda, and John came home from a, a trip uh, with Fuller to attend that group, and that group eventually became the Vineyard in Anaheim, which uh, grew very quickly. Uh, We got got up to about 3,000 people in the first five years, and that church kind of was uh, the the launch point for the Vineyard movement today. My guest is Glenn Schroeder. He's in Portland. Glenn, there's a lot of talk lately about whether God uses flawed leaders to accomplish his purpose and his will— uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, that's, uh, 
my take on that is that if, if God doesn't use flawed leaders, he's going to have a hard time finding anybody. Mm. Um, I, I look at, you know, you look at Scripture, you see people like Peter. Uh, one example, there are many, certainly David and others, but Peter was a guy who had uh, some, some flaws and some uh, drawbacks in his life, but God used him. And I think the same is true today. Again, John was very authentic, and I think being honest and genuine is one of the, the, the key facets of a really strong and good leader, to be willing to admit that we're not perfect and that, that we need the presence of God and the power of God to work in our lives as much as anybody else does. And that's really something that, that was instilled in me by John. Now, uh, let's get to this topic. Uh, the fact that recent studies show that Christians are not sharing their faith and that the number of unchurched people is growing. Uh, what's the story on those trends? Yeah, that's a great question. And clearly, specifically, those things are true. Um, I, I live in Oregon, which is the most unchurched state in the United States of America today. Fewer people go to church in Oregon than anywhere else. Really? And it, yes, and here's our approach. What we've tried to do is maybe uh, move away a little bit from some of the traditional methods of sharing your faith and evangelism, and we just try to serve our community. I, I, we take a look at what are the needs here, how, how can our church uh, help meet the needs of our community. And so we, there's, a, you know, there, there's a, uh, a large population. In fact, our church is right in front of, a, of an apartment complex that's all government-funded housing. And uh, so... One of the most, you know, obvious needs is food. And so we run a food pantry to our church. We serve, uh, reach with the groceries to 30 or 40 families a week. And when they come in, uh, I'm, I'm involved in that ministry. I'm there. And, and I uh, take the time to walk each family out to their car with their groceries as they're leaving or, or their bus or whatever their means of transportation is. And I just chat with them. I talk to them a little bit about where, where they are and what's going on in their life. And very often, there's opportunity for me to pray for somebody. I, uh, I asked a gentleman a couple of years ago. He, he was a Middle Eastern man who had been here in the United States for seven years. His family was uh, still in his home country and was not being allowed to come over. He was very lonely and very sad about that. And I looked at him. I said, hey, Sal, I'll pray for you. And he burst out in tears. He said, you're the first person that's ever said that you're praying for me. And so I really believe it's just a matter of uh, really serving people and loving people the way Jesus did rather than, than just having that focus of just trying to convert them. Glenn, why does every vineyard church have an ashtray out front? You know what? Uh, I, it's, it's so funny. I hear that. I, I, I don't think that's true. Really? Uh, I don't know where it came from, but I know that a number of them do. And, and the reason is this, because... Uh, you know, one of the chapters in, in my book is Come As You Are, and and John and the Vineyard Movement has a philosophy of uh, you don't have to get your life together and have everything in order to come to church. We want you to come to church just as you are today, and then allow Jesus to help you uh, work on some of those things in your life that might need work. And and so there's there's really not a, uh, uh, a stigma that if you, if you smoke or if you have any other sort of... Uh, you know, challenges in your life, that you, you can't be part of this community. You can be welcomed, accepted, and loved here. Uh, Dr. Wimber's book, I remember, Power Evangelism, yeah. uh, seemingly altered the way American evangelicals pray, gather, talk, reach out. Uh, he was an influential man, wasn't he? Yeah, power evangelism was uh, on Christianity Today's list of, of most uh, influential books in the 20th century. It was number 12. Uh, and, and really, you know, the, the, uh, the focus behind power evangelism is simply that we listen to the Holy Spirit and follow the Holy Spirit's leading day to day, not just at church, not in our home groups, at work, at school, at the market, at the grocery store, in the mall. And we're open to being willing to hear the voice of God, follow that leading, and just share what He puts on our heart for people. And when we do that, we find that the results to be fairly dramatic at times. My guest from Portland, Oregon, is Glenn Schroeder. We've got another segment with Glenn. But first, these messages on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. 
right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Glenn Schroeder is our guest. He's in Portland. We're talking about his book, Never Trust a Leader Without a Limp. You talk about uh, some of the Wimberisms. Uh, what are some of your favorites? Uh, you know, there's a lot of them. I think uh, Everybody Gets to Play is one of my favorites. That, that was a little uh, phrase John used to describe the reality that uh, ministry involvement in the kingdom isn't restricted to pastors or leaders, but it's really uh, it's really the call and and the, the opportunity that everybody has to be involved, to be engaged. And that was really the philosophy of ministry at John's Church, and still is today in the Vineyard Movement by and large. That uh, we have ministry teams and people that uh, pray for people at the end of each service. At our church, I. I, I try not to pray for people at the end of service because I want them to realize that it's not about me. It's about God, and so our ministry team prays for people. Uh, another one of my favorites, of course, is the meat is in the street, which is something John used to say. Uh, came out of a conversation he had with a, a, a woman who came up to him at the end of a service one night, and she wanted to know when we were going to get into the meat. He said, excuse me, and she said, you know, the meat is in the woods. When are we going to get into the meat? And John's response was the meat is in the street, meaning that the the depth of the word is really when we put it into practice and we begin to walk it out and live it out in our lives. Glenn, uh, what does this term mean? Rabbinic model of discipleship. Great question, Pat. That that really is uh, a model that that uh, we see. In, you know, in ancient Israel, through the rabbis, where they would take a student, a disciple, and the disciple would observe what the rabbi did, watch him, ask questions, and then the rabbi would invite that disciple into the process and allow them to participate with them. And then in a, in a, in a third phase, the rabbi would step back, allow the disciple to do the ministry or do the work, and then ask them questions. And so it's a really show-and-tell kind of model of discipleship that I think is much more effective than maybe just a learning process, an academic process, where we're taught in a classroom. This is a hands-on, uh, active involvement means of discipling people. And, and we do it in our church with young people in our ministry team, in our worship team, uh, and, and really in everything we do. Home group leadership, it's all done through show-and-tell, through practice, and moving on with that person along the way. I'm curious about the extent uh, of John Wimber's background in the music industry, and uh, what kind of an influence did that have on Christian worship music? Well, it had a huge influence on vineyard worship, and I think that vineyard worship had some influence on on Christian worship as, as as a whole. We see that today, but John really believed that you know, he loved music, obviously, was a musician, and believed that music was one of the key ways we can express uh, adoration, thanksgiving, worship to God. And so um, our wor- the worship of the Vineyard Movement, if you, if you look at it over the years, it, we, we have another little term we call doxology as theology. So it's really a documentation of what God's been doing in our churches. If you look at the Psalms, that's what they are. They're a documentation of what God was doing. And so our worship, and we believe most worship music today, contemporary worship music, is really a documentation of what God's saying and what God's doing in the church today. And that's why it's exciting to have new songs. Sometimes I'll have uh, somebody come to me and say, hey, why don't we sing the old hymns? And, and once in a while we do, but there's uh, eight times in the song that says sing a new song. It never says sing an old song. I want you to expand on this one, Glenn. You... Um... You say pastoral ministry isn't easy. Uh, what do you mean by that? <laughs> well, I, I think that if you're going to do pastoral ministry effectively, it means that you're really engaged in the lives of people. And you walk through hardship with them, you walk through pain with them, you walk through sickness. Sometimes you walk through uh, the loss of a loved one or a family member. Uh, so so it, it can be difficult, and there can be times when uh, you have to you have to confront people with, with things in their life that they don't want to hear. Uh, so it's a challenge. It can be a challenge. But I think to do it right, you have to be willing to be authentic, be genuine, be honest, 
and uh, and walk through some of the hard times in life with people, not just observe them from a distance. Uh, Glenn, I'm also curious because you asked several questions related to how we connect in our homogeneous, polarized culture. Uh, what do you say to that? Yeah, I, I think if you look at the church in America today, it is it is it is pretty homogenous. There's a kind of different groups of people that sort of separate themselves out. Uh, you know, I, w- I would love to see it in the Vineyard Movement. We, we really strive for diversity in our churches, uh, which, you know, I want my church to be a reflection of my community. So the community I live in, there is a, uh, a Latino population here, and we try to make space uh, for that population to be part of our church and to connect with us. We don't want it to be just uh, all white or all black or all anything. We'd like to see the kind of diversity that I believe we'll see in heaven. If you look in Revelation, is every tongue, tribe, and nation gathered together. And I really think that would be a, a great way to move forward in the life of the church today. Uh, Glenn, there was a time when you once opened up uh, to John Wimber about your own struggles. Uh, what do you remember about that time? Yeah. So... Uh, I, I was before I was on staff with John. I was a gardener, and I was working at John's house doing some landscaping one day and going through a hard time. I don't honestly remember what was happening in my life at the moment, but something was going on. And John came out and asked me how I was, and I kind of cried the blues to him a little bit. I was probably twenty-one or twenty-two years old, and he looked at me and he said, "Well, you know, you're doing the right thing." And I, I was confused by that, and I said, "What do you mean?" He goes, "Well." When you feel like that, sometimes what you want to do is pull the covers over your head and stay in bed all day. But the right thing to do is to get up and, and put your shoes and socks on and go to work. And then pray. And just pray in the Spirit and pray until it lifts. And I tell you, that three-minute conversation uh, changed a lot of things for me. It really gave me a different perspective on life. I followed, followed John's advice. I kept working and began to pray, and it wasn't too long until my perspective and my attitude was a little different. Glenn, I want you to talk about the Holy Spirit and His work in our lives and uh, what you can teach us about that. That's a big question, Pat. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, you know, in the, again, in the Vineyard Movement, we, we practice the gifts of the Spirit, and we really focus a lot on listening to the Spirit and, and trying to be as Spirit-led as we can be. Uh, I, I really believe that God wants to be much more involved in every aspect of our lives, and we sometimes recognize or allow Him to be. And so if we will uh, be willing to take the time and yield to the Spirit and ask God to lead us and guide us, I believe He will. And again, what happens in that is sometimes you might see someone a little differently than you would have seen them had you not been doing that. You might have an opportunity to pray for somebody or just to even speak a word of encouragement to somebody or help somebody out in a way that you might not have thought of on your own. Glenn Schroeder is with us. Uh, He's in Portland, Oregon. Has been part of the Vineyard Movement since 1976 when he started attending a little home group in Yorba Linda, California that eventually became the Anaheim Vineyard. Uh... Glenn, you say that being in a grace-filled community was the way in and the way on. Uh, what's that mean? Uh, the way in and the way on is another little uh, Wimberism, a little thing that John used to say, meaning that we come to Christ through faith. We, we trust and believe in Him, and the grace of God welcomes us and accepts us where we are. That's how we get in. And it's really how we move on as well. Our growth and our our own personal discipleship takes place as we continue to allow God's grace to work in our lives, continue to allow the Spirit to direct us and to point out things in our lives that we may need to change. I mean, I've been walking with the Lord for, I don't know, 40-plus years now, and I'm not there yet. I've still got things that from time to time the Holy Spirit will show me I need to redirect in my life and... uh, so I, w- I want to be as open to his leading as I can be throughout. Glenn, uh, here's another one that's of interest to me, and that is, what can evangelicals learn today 
about reaching the lost and the unchurched? What, what's your counsel? Uh, gosh, again, Pat, I think it really comes down to taking a look at what are what are the needs of our community, where are people's lives at, what are the things that they're struggling with. Uh, I, I don't believe there's anything that we can go through in life that God doesn't have something to say about. And so if we can find out what it is that people are, are dealing with and we can really approach them on that level and try to be servants, try to love them, try to extend welcome, uh, let people know. I think sometimes people feel as though maybe they're not welcome at church for one reason or another. Let them know they're welcome. I think we'll be very successful at seeing people come come to the Lord and come into our churches. Glenn, why is the state of Oregon uh, seemingly, as you explained earlier, uh, so unchurched? Yeah, you know, uh, I've asked myself that question many times. Uh, I think one reason is uh, that Oregon is the end of the Oregon Trail, and there is a kind of an individualistic pioneer spirit here that still prevails that says, I can do this on my own. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. I don't really need anyone else to help me. And I, and I, I really do think that's sort of a spiritual dynamic that rests over this state, and that uh, the only way that we can penetrate that is by the leading of the Spirit and by really helping people realize the value of, of true community and what it means to be in a community. Uh, another reason, of course, is that Oregon is very progressive, very liberal, and uh, I think people here have uh, a preconceived distaste of, of organized religion. Mm. And it's interesting, I found they might not necessarily not like Jesus, but they don't like church. They don't like organized religion as much. And it's helping them see that uh, really that's just a way for people to come together uh, in the guidance and in the love of Jesus. Why do you think so many young people find a home in Vineyard? Uh, Again, I think because we allow them to make a vital contribution. Uh, It's not, they're not told, come sit here, listen, and behave yourself. They're told, come, and let's see what you have to offer. How can you be a part? And we really, uh, I mean, I look for ways to get people engaged and try to to, uh, use the gift that they have to increase our church. We have a young lady in our church who's artistic, and so we actually have her come up, and she paints during worship on Sundays. We have another young lady who's really organized and has an eye for design and decor, so she she sets up our coffee bar and our sanctuary and something so that it's appealing and, and effective and, and welcoming to people. I think that's just a way that they can use what they have to be part of this community. And it really is engaging. Glenn, what do you hope readers uh, will take away from your book that can be relevant to their lives? Gosh, uh, you know, I, I think my, my real goal with the book was to... Uh, translate some of these sort of foundational tenets and, and some of the DNA of the Vineyard Movement, as John Wimber described it, to a young generation today. I think the book has value for people beyond the Vineyard Movement. Uh, I hope that people can go away believing that they, too, have something to give to the Kingdom of God and that uh, who they are is of value to Him, that they don't have to be something or someone else that they they really can contribute today and be a real vital part of the kingdom. Uh, Two quotes I want you to expand on from from John. Believe believe your beliefs and doubt your doubts, and I'm just a fat man on my way to heaven. (laughs) Okay, so believe your beliefs and doubt your doubts is this, that I think all of us from time to time will go through doubt. Well, question, is this real? Is, it, is, what, is the Word real? Is what God says real? And so John would say, you know, when we, when we study Scripture, we, we get to understand what we believe. This, believe those things. Stay true to those things. Don't doubt those things. Doubt the doubts that come. When, when those doubts come in, those are the things we need to push away and, and stay solid in our belief. Uh, as far as being a fat man on the way to heaven, that was the way that John described himself, and it really was just, uh, kind of a statement of humility. It's like, I'm nobody special. I'm not God's man of the hour. I'm not the best next big thing to come around the block. I'm just like you. I'm just another guy. I have my own struggles. I have my own weaknesses. 
but I am in, in the presence of God and in, in the power of God, and I'm walking my life out day by day with him. And uh, that's what he used to try to communicate to us. Our guest has been Glenn Schroeder, author of Never Trust a Leader Without a Limp. We've got another segment here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay with us here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. Glenn Schroeder, our guest in that first segment in Portland, Oregon, stays uh, writing Never Trust a Leader Without a Limp. When we stay in the Pacific Northwest, Al Arisman is in Seattle, author of the Service Master Story, Navigating Tension Between People and Profit, Albert, welcome. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Nice to be here. What uh, prompted you to write about Service Master? And maybe more importantly, what is Service Master? What What's the story here? All right, let me start with what is Service Master. Uh, up until 2000, it was a collection of brands, uh, people that were doing various service work. So it included things like uh, Service Master Clean, Home Cleaning, uh, disaster relief. It included Terminex. It included lawn care. All sorts of brands that uh, people uh, were working under in order to do service work. Um, what prompted me to write the book, though, is, is quite different. I have been interested in finding businesses that do well, that have um, uh, quality to them, that care about their customers and their people. I've researched this for many years. And the fourth CEO from Service Master, Bill Pollard, uh, gave me a call one day, and he just said, I think there's a need for a book about the history of this company, and I think you're the one to write it. And after some convincing and two and a half years of work, uh, the book is out. Uh, it was an incredible experience to dig into what made this company tick, what were the principles behind it? How do they apply to anyone at work, whether a leader or a worker? I want you to tell us about Marion Wade, the founder, and how the hardships he experienced shaped his company. Yes, Marion was a, uh, a very unusual individual. He was uh, energetic. He was about five foot six. He had an eighth grade education. He came from a family whose alcoholic father left them. His mother scrambled to provide for the family with grandparents in the Chicago area. At the time of the Depression, he had uh, been selling for a company and went one day, and the uh, doors were locked. Mm. And, and he said, I need to control my own destiny. He picked up a product that he had been selling and started a company in 1929, the time of the Depression. He adapted to almost anything that changed along the way. In spite of the fact that he had only an eighth grade education, however, he was really smart. Uh, one of the things he did is he realized that uh, moth proofing, one of the products of the company, um, didn't really work so well. And he threw a friend convinced a professor at Northwestern University that he could take over a lab and invent something better. And he did. And that became a staple product for them for many years. He later invented uh, rug cleaning uh, process, which is still used today. So he was a very inventive guy. But in 1944, he was applying his mop-proofing uh, concepts and had an accident and was blinded. Really? And he he called it this Damascus Road experience. And uh, he thought maybe he would never recover his sight. He did after about a year. Uh, but while he was in the hospital, he had an encounter with God to say, how should I think about my business? And he made this profound statement. He said, I've been a Christian for a long time. But that never applied in my business. What would it be like to have a business that was run in a way to honor God? And so in 1944, he started that 
journey of transforming this little tiny company working out of his home to something that would honor God and live beyond him. And he was the energy behind this um, until he died in uh, 1973. And before that, he uh, hired a pastor to actually take over and run the business, a man named Ken Hansen. And Ken is the one that put the business structure around this company, incorporated it, and ultimately took them public in 1962. Al, there were four objectives that these leaders had you've covered to honor God in all we do. That's the first one. The second one is called to help people to develop. Uh, Can you expand on that? Yes. So it was in 1973 that Ken Westner and Ken Hansen took uh, to honor God in the marketplace and transformed it into these four objectives. The second one was they believed very strongly that the service people, first of all, were image bearers of God. Secondly, that all work had dignity. And so their role as a company was to help people develop. And so they put a great deal of attention into the idea of allowing a person to learn and grow on the job. They had a goal for a long period of time of promoting 20% of the people that started in service work into leadership roles. And uh, the big emphasis was on helping people develop. Peter Drucker, uh, the well-known business uh, consultant, made the comment about Service Master, you're not really in the services business. You're in the people development business. And the stories of people that started in the maintenance work and ended up vice president of the company, uh, there are many of those stories. And uh, they really wanted to live that. Um, And it made a huge difference because they did it for the right reason. They did it because they believed in the workers, and they wanted to honor God in the way they approached the work. It turns out that this was transformational in terms of uh, the uh, way the company grew. Jim Heskett from Harvard uh, did two case studies on Service Master, and he made this comment. He said, every other service business seems to treat people as low-cost labor, utilities to get the work done, Service Master is the first that tried to put uh, purpose and meaning into the work to value the worker, and he said they have cracked the code on the service industry. So they, they were very serious about this second objective of helping people develop. And then there's a third objective – Uh, to pursue excellence. Tell us about that. Well, if you're in business and you do your work to the glory of God, you're going to do it well. One of the big themes that runs throughout the Service Master history is how do we demonstrate uh, that God is over our business and you have to do it by doing very good work. Uh, sometimes, you know, people like to say, well, if I'm nice, that's all that matters. No, you've got to deliver the value. And so uh, pursuing excellence, pursuing excellence recognizes that uh, every person, including me, including the leader, is an imperfect person and will make mistakes. But the idea of pursuing excellence also requires then some level of forgiveness and apology along the way when you don't, when you mess up and you get it right. So the pursuit of excellence became a theme of everything that they did. And then there's a final uh, point here, uh, the final objective, to grow profitably. Yes. So a business is not a business if it doesn't make a profit. It might be a, a, a service or a nonprofit or something else. But if you're going to be a business, you create economic value. So Service Master put that forth for a, a 
particular reason. They said this is a means goal to accomplish the end goal. The end goal is to honor God in all we do and help people develop. But the means is to grow profitably. Bill Pollard, the fourth CEO, liked to say that profit is a means of measuring what we're doing and that it has value, but it's not an end to be worshipped. And so as you think about those four objectives, you realize that they are often in tension. So as I help a person develop and pursue excellence and grow profitably while honoring God, these might create some tension, and they recognize that tension. And every decision ran through a sieve of saying, how can we do not one or the other, but all of these? Ken Hansen gave a really uh, brilliant explanation of this. He said, think of an exercise band and two of these as being uh, things that you are holding together. And as you stretch the exercise band, there's tension. He said, the key is never let go of either end or you'll get hit in the head. Mm. Mm. So, so he, uh, he said it's the tension that actually drives the creativity and allows you to find a solution that doesn't give up one or the other but holds on to all of them. And that was the way they sought to run their company uh, from uh, the 40s when they kind of got this orientation all the way through 2000. Al Erisman is with us from Seattle, the service master story. Al, um, you discuss several companies, including Service Master, Hewlett Packard, and Starbucks. Uh, tell us about the dilemmas they faced and what are the lessons we can learn? Yeah, so uh, both Starbucks and uh, uh, Service Master and other companies have uh, faced a dilemma that a leader has a, a lifetime, and then at the end, you have to replace that leader. What does that look like? What is the transition? Starbucks and HP face the problem of saying our long, iconic leader that held to values of the worker, that held to values of excellence, uh, we need to replace that person. How do you get someone that continues to live out that set of objectives? Uh, Starbucks actually uh, had replaced a longtime leader uh, in about 2005. They found that it didn't work out very well because they were losing what was their edge. I remember the chairman of the company said, anyone can come in and copy our stores, copy our menu, copy the way we, uh, the products we sell, but they can't capture the spirit of what it is we are doing. And it's that leadership that nurtures that spirit. So they ended up actually replacing that leader. The chairman stepped back into being CEO in order to continue uh, that plan. HP had a long run of, of being a uh, company that really cared. There was this HP way. And yet, when it came time to replace uh, Lou Platt in about 2001, uh, they struggled with finding a leader who would carry on this idea of servant leadership, valuing the worker, supporting the culture of the company. And Service Master faced this in 2001 when they brought in a new leader. And the new leader didn't quite carry out this thing. In fact, there's a quote that said, you know, it's really all about profit, as many other companies are. And it's been difficult to watch the decline in Service Master that has happened. In fact, just last week, after the book had come out, just last week they announced yet another CEO was being replaced. And the new CEO said, I don't know why we have all these brands here and we have to drive profitability. Maybe we need to spin off some brands. There was nothing left of this idea of valuing the worker and building the culture in the company that created this great place to work. My guest is in Seattle. 
His name is Al Erisman. <coughs> We're talking about his book about the service master's story. It's a good read, great book. We have another segment with Al, so I want you to stay with us right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. We gather like this every weekend, and we're always very, very pleased when you take the time to join us. We'll be right back. My guest is Al Arisman. He's in Seattle. We're talking about his book, The Service Master's Story. Al, why is succession planning so vital, and how has this been done at Service Master? Service Master had a unique commitment to the way they did succession planning. Each one planned not how long can I stay, but how soon will the next person be ready? How can I prepare that person? But they had a concept that they invented uh, very early on, which they borrowed actually from a silver company. Marion Wade was reading in a book and found the way this company did leadership. And they said uh, they were doing what they called shingles on a roof. They overlap each other. They look at the strengths and weaknesses of the current leader, the future leader, the past leader, and say, how can we continue to work together using the strength of each one? And so when Marion Wade became chairman, Ken Hansen was the new CEO, but Ken would bring Marion in to talk to customers because he was really good at that. He was a good face for the company. He had a great personality, and on and on it went. And so they continued to operate uh, collaboratively, being very intentional about raising up the next uh, generation of leaders. And they tried to do that throughout the organization. So the, there was a, a long commitment to training and development of people so that there would always be people that would be ready to uh, take on the next area of leadership. And that didn't just mean the technical things. It meant this, the way of orienting toward the worker, the idea of valuing and supporting the worker, and the idea of training. If I could give you one quick example, um, you know, you might think that doing janitorial work at a hospital is pretty much grunt work, pretty much difficult work. And yet, at the hospital, service master would ask the doctors and nurses to talk with the janitorial staff and explain to them, your work is not cleaning the floor. It's helping the patient get well. Here's the link between what you are doing and the mission of the hospital. That gave service workers a sense that their work had a much more importance than most janitors are thought to have. And this applied to all of the work of the company. So this idea of developing the next people, preparing them, having them understand, and then uh, working together to collaborate for the best of the company and the customer is something that pervaded the way Service Master did its work. Now, I want you to get to this topic for us. How can failure be a means to personal, spiritual, business growth? We all face failure. Uh, can you expand on that? Yes. Um, if we assume that we uh, are perfect people uh, and the company only works with perfect people, we have a model that just doesn't work because we are imperfect. So they recognize this from the very beginning. They talk a lot. Every leader uh, talks a lot about their personal failure, their mistakes, the need for forgiveness, the need to try things that maybe won't work but not punish the person that tried it, but to learn from it. So this idea of ongoing uh, growth and development uh, and learning from mistakes. And that became a theme within Service Master is how can I learn from what I did as opposed to how can we punish the person who made a mistake? Al, um, there are voices in the country today 
suggesting that socialism is good and making too much money is something to apologize for. What's your perspective? I think Service Master demonstrated that the value of uh, generating a profit to be invested in growth and development of people, to be invested as a return to the shareholder, is something that is uh, of very high value. I think so. I think this idea of uh, uh, so, uh, socialism would not provide the opportunity for all of these people to grow and develop. I think, on the other hand, and I, I think we we need to be cautious here. If it's pursuit of profit only, and no one cares about the worker, that also creates a problem. And so, what I think Service Master found is the uh, a very uh, important line in capitalism where it is generating value, generating opportunity, and very important for growth. But it's not an end in itself. It's a means by which this other work is carried out. And they were able to walk this line in a way that both generated the profit and generated the value for people. One of the ironic twists that happened after 2000, when they started focusing only on profit, was that the profit itself actually declined. And so perhaps we can think about profit much like we think about happiness. It's a, it takes a lot of hard work and it's a byproduct, not an end in itself. And I think that's the line that Service Master found and I do believe that addresses this issue for people who say profit is not good and socialism is right, but it also addresses some of the challenges that we see today in capitalism. Al Arisman is with us. The book is called The Service Master's Story. Al, why do you believe starting with ethics rather than business skills is foundational to success? Well, here's one way to put it. If you decide to set ethics aside and build a business and wait till you're successful, who's going to retrain all the people to start acting ethically once you've gotten to this point? Who likes to work, uh, buy products or support a company that is unethical? I think ethics is the very foundation of everything that you do. You know, I, I think that I, I trust uh, God as I saw God's hand at work in the life of Service Master. Marion Wade was not the greatest businessman, but he, was, he had an incredible ethical foundation. And that foundation was deeply rooted in Service Master and affected everything they did for generations beyond him. So I do think that's the place to start. Because otherwise you build habits, you acquire people that will take you in a different direction, and I just don't see the recovery plan. And I want you to uh, tell us your best definition of integrity. I think integrity is wholeness. Uh, It means I'm the same person at work as I am at home, as I am at church. It isn't that I have one life to live uh, in my Christian life on Sunday and a different life in business, but I'm a person who is a whole person. And uh, I believe that captures the essence of everything uh, involved in integrity. Now, integrity certainly involves uh, following what the law says, uh, involves not making really bad errors of judgment. But it's, it's so much more than that. It's about uh, being a person with a purpose and with a wholeness that is reflected in everything I do. What do you want people to take from this book and our chat? What I hope they would take is uh, two things. If the person happens to be a business owner or a manager, or a leader of some kind, even an organization, not a business. I would hope that they would see that this idea of servant leadership, of valuing the person, of having purpose and meaning, 
is really a great way to run an organization if you mean it, if you really, truly believe it. If you're a person working in an organization, I think the idea that you might say, well, I wish I worked in an in a organization like this. But if you don't, how can you take the purpose and meaning that God has given you to uh, apply that to the work that you do, to find God's purpose in what you're doing, to live it out in a way that has integrity, to uh, respect and value the people around you, even if they do things that are different from what you do. And I think that together, any person working in an organization at the top or at the bottom can benefit from some of the lessons that Service Master demonstrated. Al Arisman has been our guest. The book, The Service Master Story. We've got a wrap-up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Well, thanks so much for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. In that first segment, Glenn Schroeder uh, plugged in from Portland talking about never trust a leader without a limp. And then Al Arisman in Seattle uh, shared with us about his book, The Service Master Story. Uh, as you may have heard, we're trying to uh, bring Major League Baseball to Orlando, and you can help uh, by going up to the website, orlandodreamers.com. That's orlandodreamers.com. And just uh, go up there and say, yes, I'm all for this. And at some point, uh, I might have an interest in season tickets if this all becomes reality. Uh, we're trying to build those numbers to impress Major League Baseball uh, that Orlando is the spot to uh, get a Major League team. Uh, we're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay tuned all day long to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando.